So just to, just to fill us in on how we've got here, it's the early hours of the morning. So it's really early in the morning. And the Last Supper or the First Communion was the night before. That lovely meal that Jesus had with his friends. And then ever since then, he's not slept. He was betrayed, like he said he would be. He was denied, like he said he would be. And he submitted his will completely to the will of the Father for us, because there was no other way. He's been arrested by Roman soldiers, and he's had a trial by his own people. He's had a trial in front of the religious leaders, and now he's been dragged to the palace, to the seat of Roman government in Jerusalem. And this part of John's Gospel, it almost reads a bit like a play. It's not like a static conversation between two people who are just standing still or sitting down. The action is constantly shifting from inside the palace to outside the palace, inside the palace, outside the palace. And I think, actually, we'll, we'll come on to see um, how revealing that is, what that shows us about the character of Pilate and how much he contrasts with Jesus. We see in their words and actions, Jesus just shining in comparison to this dark leader. John 1 verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And I really hope today, as we go through this story, that you really perceive, that you see, that you hear, that you grasp with your mind's eye how shining Jesus is in this really difficult encounter, this really painful time. So I'm going to start reading from our passage. So this is John 18, verse 28 onwards. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. And this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. So the people now are in the middle of the Passover feast. And that's actually why Pilate's in town. So Pilate mainly lived somewhere else. But festival times were times where there could be trouble. So the governor would come to town with his soldiers. And so that's why Pilate is in Jerusalem. Just in case anything kicks off during the festival. It's a little bit like how when there are certain events here, the police kind of cancel everyone's leave. They staff up. So Notting Hill Carnival, if you're the police, you're not getting that bank holiday weekend off. Things can kick off during these festival times. And particularly in this situation, which is a situation of a colonial government. So the Romans are ruling in this place. They're hated. Their religion is completely different 
to the religion of the Jewish people. And now there's this religious festival, and you can kind of you can kind of see how that could be a tense time. That could be a time where if you were the Roman rulers, you you want to make sure your authority is clear. So Pilate's moved into Jerusalem for the season. And he's come outside the palace because they won't come in in case they're contaminated by this Gentile. And he asks them, what are the charges? Now, he's already, by this point, sent a load of soldiers with them to arrest Jesus. So it's not like Pilate's kind of woken up from his sleep and he's totally surprised by the situation. He'd already agreed to the arrest. He'd already facilitated the arrest. So most people who um, comment on this passage agree that Pilate's, they're all kind of playing mind games here. So Pilate's trying to mark his authority. He's not just going to take Jesus on from them and rubber stamp their decision. He's going to make it a bit difficult for them. He's going to show them, make sure they remember who's boss here in Jerusalem. And, and you can sense in the way they respond to him, their frustration. If he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. And Pilate knows that they need him. Judge him yourself by your own law. And then John tells us something a bit strange here. He says that this, this little conversation outside the palace between Pilate and these leaders, John says it happens to fulfill what Jesus himself had said about his death. So let's just quickly rewind and remind ourselves what Jesus had said. And actually, he said things like this several times. I've just picked out one example. So in John chapter 12, verse 31, this is Jesus talking. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And the crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus had said many times that he would be lifted up. And there were other forms of execution available at this time. If the religious leaders really believed that Jesus was a blasphemer, they could have stoned him. They could have hung him, but they wanted him crucified. And it's really interesting that John draws our attention to this, that this, this happened to fulfill what Jesus had said about how he was going to die. So that was outside the palace. And now Pilate goes inside the palace and he brings Jesus in with him. So we're going to pick up from verse 33 in John 18. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world 
is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. No, it's all gone wrong. Never used technology. Oh, no. Okay, so let's look at the contrast between these two kingdoms, between these two systems of ruling. Jesus is kind of showing Pilate up here, which is a brave thing to do. Is that your own idea? Or has someone else told you to say that? Are you really in charge? Or are you just a puppet? And Pilate, he's trying to distance himself from this kind of local rabble, this local religious dispute. Your own people handed you over to me. And despite the fact that, physically speaking, Pilate holds all the cards here, it feels like Jesus is in charge of this conversation. And so he engages with Pilate's question about his kingship. He says his kingdom is not of this world, but it's from another place. Earlier on, we sang a song, and one of the lines was, there's an army rising up. And sometimes in some of our worship songs, we might sing about an army. We might use these kind of metaphors of a battle. But what kind of army are we meaning when we sing those things? We know that when one of Jesus' friends tried to defend him when he was being arrested, Jesus said, put that away, put your sword away. That's not the kind of fighting that Jesus needs. Even here right now, he, you know, he's saying, if my kingdom was from this world, my guys would come and they would rescue me, they would fight you. The kind of implicit statement there is that, and obviously we would win. But that's not the kind of army for Jesus' kingdom. And so Pilate, it always feels like he doesn't get what's going on. The conversation's slipping away from him. So he wants to keep it on a plane that he can understand. Ah, so you are a king, then, to go back to what he said before. And then Jesus speaks about his mission. He was born, he came into the world to testify to the truth. And Jesus gives Pilate an opportunity here. Don't miss this. Because Jesus says to Pilate that everyone who's on the side of truth will listen to him, will listen to Jesus. This is an opportunity for Pilate to say, I want to be on the side of truth and to listen to Jesus. Everyone, Jesus says, not just a specific subset of people from a specific nation. Everyone who's on the side of the truth listens to me. So Pilate, are you on the side of truth? And Pilate dismisses this. What is truth? And I could have read that in so many different tones of voice. I think growing up as I heard this story, I, th I think I sort of heard Pilate ask that question in a very philosophical and profound way. I've got a friend uh, who manages to make everything he says sound really profound. Like he could ask you for a cup of coffee and, and you'd like want to put it on a T-shirt or something. It's so quotable. And I think I used to imagine that Pilate would be like, what is truth? This noble philosopher. 
But I think as we've, as we've already seen Pilate's tone and the character of this man, I think it's much more likely that he says it in a very dismissive way. What is truth? And we think sometimes that the postmodern mindset is new, that, you know, it's only in the last few decades that people have questioned the existence of truth. Is, is there even such a thing? And yet, in Pilate, 2,000 years ago, we see someone dismissing the idea of, of truth that can be known. And I think another way that we know that he says this kind of dismissively, kind of rhetorically, is what he does straight after. So we've been inside the palace, and now we're going back outside the palace, carrying on reading from chapter 18. So with this, with that question, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. So it seems like Pilate thinks he's found a way to get out of this one. He's not found a reason to find Jesus a threat to his own Roman power. He wants to just move on from the whole thing. And he thinks, yeah, I can offer them a chance to get this guy, get this guy released. But the crowd aren't having it. So then Pilate goes back inside. And now we're in chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. And I said that some of this reads a bit like a play. There's so much action here. There's so much movement here. And if you were the actor playing Pilate, maybe up till this point, you might have played him as somebody a bit, a bit remote, quite cold, removed from what's going on. But now we see the brutality of power. So Pilate orders Jesus to be beaten, even though he's literally just said, I can't, I can't find anything that this guy's done. He orders him to be beaten, and then he hands him over to soldiers to abuse him. And I want to remind you of a more pleasant time a time when this Jesus stood on the side of a mountain and he preached to a massive crowd who were desperate to be like him, desperate to follow him. And this is what he said. This is in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then... Skipping on a bit in that sermon, he said this, verse 38. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. 
If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. We said this before, but those things that Jesus talked about, they're being done to him. He's being falsely accused. He's being mocked, slapped in the face again and again. Later on, he's going to be forced by soldiers to walk a terrible walk. They're going to take his clothes. He's going to have no choice in that matter. So today, the focus is on Pilate and his encounter with Jesus. But I just wanted to remind us how even in this awful place, Jesus is living out what he taught. He doesn't set up this standard this way of life for us and then take the easy road himself Jesus is literally practicing what he preached he's accepting this abuse that he could stop he's accepting it for us and Luke's gospel tells us that actually Pilate had decided that he would have Jesus beaten, and then let him go. So this was Pilate's way. He's already tried to just completely let Jesus go, and the people aren't having it. So now Pilate's like, okay, we'll, we'll flog him, and then we'll let him go. Maybe that will appease this angry crowd. So that kind of explains a little bit of what's going on for Pilate. But it doesn't excuse what he's done. He's taken a man who he believes to be innocent, and he's put him up for this treatment. He's consigned him to this hazing by these soldiers. And we don't have loads of detail there, but if you've ever seen, read, heard about the kinds of things that can go on when a bunch of soldiers are able to do what they want, you know that it's not, it's not a good place to be. And Pilate has let that happen fully. And you know that, that crown of thorns they put on his head? So it's quite likely that that was made out of the thorns of the very same palm that people were waving at him when he came into Jerusalem. We celebrate Palm Sunday in the Christian calendar. A lot of churches will be celebrating that today. But there was a crown of thorns put on his head instead. So let's carry on, chapter 19, verse 4. So Pilate comes out again. And he said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Why, why do you think Pilate was afraid? What was it about hearing that that made him afraid? Was it the level of anger and murderous rage that was coming across really clearly from the people? 
Was he worried that things were getting out of hand? Remember that the whole point of him being in Jerusalem at this time was to keep the peace. He had one job to do, and it wasn't going very well. Was it the mention that Jesus claims to be a son of God? That was something a bit beyond the situation that Pilate thought he was facing. Some local guy claiming to be the king of his little local tiny nation. And now they're bringing the son of God into it. And in the Roman religion, that was a title that was reserved for the emperor or for the gods. So Pilate's afraid. He goes back into the palace. So we're back inside. And verse 9, where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And a bit later on, we're going to come back to this question of power and authority and where it comes from. Because this passage raises all kinds of questions about who is really in charge. Jesus tells Pilate that Pilate's power isn't from Rome. It's been given to him from above. That's really encouraging and really frightening for reasons I'll explain in a bit. So the people who want to see Jesus dead, they play a really smart move now. They know Pilate's weak point. He cannot afford to be seen as disloyal to Caesar. So they link Jesus to Caesar. This man is a threat to Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a friend of Caesar must oppose this man. And it's interesting because actually at this point, it says that Pilate's still inside the palace. So they're now shouting so loud that he hears them from within the palace. And now for the final time in this story, we leave the palace. So chapter 19, verse 13. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So it was early morning and now it's the middle of the day. And the chief priests cry out that they have no king but Caesar. This nation that has been so desperate to escape Roman rule, but their hatred of Jesus is such that at this point, they're claiming Caesar as their king. And finally, Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. 
I want to contrast these two men, these two leaders. Pilate was a weak leader. He was led by those he was supposed to rule. He lived in great fear of the one who'd sent him, of Caesar. And even just the amount of times we go inside and outside the palace, this guy can't make decisions because he's such a weak leader. But Jesus was strong. Jesus was strong enough to be silent. Jesus was strong enough, we know that he told the winds and the waves to be still and they obeyed him. Jesus wasn't led by those around him, but he chose to put himself lower. He washed the feet of his followers and they they hated that. They were really shocked by that. But he chose to do that. And And Jesus knew that he'd been sent by the Father. And think about how Pilate just clearly lives in fear of this Caesar who can remove him like that and take his life. But when we look at Jesus' relationship with the Father who sent him, we see a really close relationship. We see Jesus talking with the Father, a sense that the Father is with him. The Father isn't some distant ruler but is right with him the father's someone close the father's someone Jesus trusts and Jesus shares his heart with so Pilate was weak but Jesus was strong and Pilate was brutal he casually sentenced Jesus to be whipped he allowed the soldiers to torture the prisoner just for fun And then he sentenced this man who he knew was innocent. He said it himself, but he sentenced this man to a form of death that many people agree is the most painful. He sentenced Jesus to be tortured. He was brutal. But Jesus was gentle. Jesus is gentle. Jesus was someone that children were drawn to. They were drawn to him so much that his friends were like, get these kids away from the Lord's. And children aren't drawn to brutality. Jesus knew when to be quiet. Jesus never used his power to torment the weak. He never used his power to take advantage. Jesus lifts up the weak. Jesus gives strength to the weary. Jesus came to set prisoners free, to mend broken hearts. So Pilate was brutal, but Jesus was gentle. And Pilate was insecure. He knew that his power could be taken away from him really easily, like we've said. And so that's why he just goes back and forth, in and out. He doesn't have the confidence, he doesn't have the security in his leadership to make a decision and stick to that decision. He's going to set him free. He's going to have him flogged and set him free. He's going to have him crucified. He's fundamentally insecure. Whereas Jesus knew exactly who he was. Just to go back to that story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, 
from John 13, 3 to 5, it says this. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. That foot washing, that amazing act of service from a leader to his followers, it says, it says right there, it's because he knew who he was. He knew where he'd come from and what he'd come for. And so he served. Pilate was insecure, but Jesus was deeply secure. Jesus knew who he was. And Pilate was people-pleasing. All these things are connected. Weakness, insecurity, and people-pleasing, and leadership, they're, they're massively linked. And Pilate was trying to please people. Back and forth again. Trying to keep everybody happy. Trying to keep the peace. Trying to give everyone what they want just to get out of the situation because it's clearly just really uncomfortable. And Jesus lived to please the Father, but he did love people. The choice isn't people-pleasing or forget everybody else and live your own life. Jesus wasn't a slave to pleasing people, but he absolutely loved people and poured himself out for us. And loving people doesn't always mean pleasing them. Jesus spoke the truth. Even to Pilate, I think Jesus gave him an opportunity to be a lover of truth, to be on the side of truth. To Pilate was people-pleasing. Jesus was God-pleasing and loved people. So, in this encounter, we see Jesus with somebody who, at first glance, is a very powerful man. And actually, we see the weakness of human power. We see in the things that Jesus does and in the things that Jesus says, such a contrast between him and his power and authority and this leader, this pilot. So it's a really, it's been quite a long passage today. And there's been a lot for us to learn, a lot for us to see in the attitude of Jesus. If we want to follow Jesus, there's a lot there for us to emulate, for us to copy. And there's an invitation for us to be on the side of truth and to listen to him. But I want to close just by thinking for a few minutes about power, about sovereignty. This is just, you know, a light, easy topic to close our time. One of my friends has a tattoo. It says, what's for you won't go by you. The song says, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. And my Muslim friends, they say, inshallah, if God wills. And I love my friend, but I hate her tattoo. Because <laughs> it's completely meaningless. What's for you won't go by you. How do you know? Behind that statement, 
there's this idea that there's an agent at work. There's somebody, something, deciding what's for you and then sending it your way. But my friend with this tattoo and my other friends who've said that to me at various times don't have any sense of who this somebody or this something might be. How do you know that what's for you won't go by you? Inshallah, if God wills. I think there's actually a lot of wisdom in that. And we see James saying something a bit similar. So James says when we're telling people our plans, and particularly when we're boasting, we might want to just have a think about that. So this is James chapter 4, verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city. Spend a year there. Carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Just a bit of friendly encouragement there from James. But I think we need to go beyond, inshallah, beyond if it's God's will. Because that can actually be a way of distancing ourselves from events. It's a way of just leaving that mystery in the hands of God. And what do we see Jesus doing? How do we see Jesus interacting with the will of God? Because he teaches us that God is not this unknowable, distant God who has a will and it will just happen. Jesus taught us to pray. He taught us to pray this, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not just to say, if, if God wills, if God wills, but to pray. To participate in God's will being done. And again, I just, I really want you to see how Jesus lives out what he teaches. So he taught them this prayer. And then he prays something very like it himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. A few hours before the story that we've looked at today. This is from Matthew chapter 26. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. So the will of God is something that Jesus taught us to pray for. It's not just something to kind of excuse us from any decision making. Just saying... Stick God willing on the end of every sentence and, and you're living a holy life. No, Jesus taught us to pray, God, your will be done. And then Jesus prayed it when it really mattered. He prayed it on our behalf. Later on, you know, he says to God, if there's, if, if there's any other way, but if there's no other way, then I will do this because your will be done. His great love for us and his submission to the will of the Father it's what sets us free. So that's how Jesus lived and that's how Jesus prayed. God was sovereign. God's will would happen. But also, God's will was something to engage with, to pray, to seek out and to obey. Not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours.
And the story so far, leading up to this point, there's so many people who make evil decisions. Judas sells his friend for 30 pieces of silver. Peter denies his Lord out of fear. The chief priests, they plot to kill the one who is sent to save them. And Pilate commits an innocent man to be tortured to death in public. But as we read the gospel accounts of all of these different things, and they were wrong things, there's this thread of the sovereignty of God. God's not endorsing the evil. But it's used to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill what was spoken about in the Old Testament and to fulfill what Jesus himself had said. He is the one we've been waiting for. God uses these evil things and somehow his will is done. Jesus said this about Judas in Matthew 26. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he'd not been born. It's really hard to wrap our heads around that. Jesus is saying that what Judas is doing is wrong. It's so wrong that it would have been better if Judas had not been born. I think it's clear from that that Judas had a choice. Judas wasn't a robot carrying out some plot of God. But the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. And Jesus was handed over to Pilate to fulfill what he'd said about the kind of death he'd die. And Jesus says to Pilate, John 19, you would have no power over me if it was not given to you from above. And this, this is terrifying and it's a mercy. It's terrifying for people like me who like to look at the world and divide people into good and bad, you know, just leaders and unjust leaders, people on my side and people not. If you look at some of our world leaders now, and you think, oh, just you wait. You're going to get it. This is terrifying. That God might have allowed, or not allowed, I'm trying to wriggle out of it, that God has actually given authority to evil leaders. But that is the picture of politics that our Bible paints for us. We see it in the Old Testament, don't we, where there's all these different foreign powers that are used by God to bring his people back to repentance. We see it in the New Testament. You know, Paul, Paul tells us in Romans that rulers have been appointed by God. Evil humans, but a divine outcome. That's hard to take. But there's a mercy in it. And the mercy in it is that in God's story, even though what Pilate does is evil, even though he uses his power in a brutal way, the redemptive story of God wins. 
the power that Pilate is given is just for a time. Pilate's gone. The Roman Empire's gone. Long gone. You can see it's ruins. And so many empires have come and gone. And it's fascinating to read history and to read how people saw certain empires as just, this will never be defeated. This is it now. This is how the world is. And those empires have gone. But the kingdom of Jesus advances. Two men, one with what felt like all the power in the known world at that time, the power of the Roman Empire behind him. And one man who said he was a king, that his kingdom was not of this world. One man standing alone, a king with no visible followers at that time. But one of those men is long gone. And one of them, many of us in this room are part of his kingdom. And his kingdom is spreading all around the world. So I'm not going to pretend that in those couple of minutes I've sorted out all our questions about sovereignty. I think what we can see is that it's complex. But I really don't want today to be about intellectual questions. I don't want you to go away and revisit Calvinism and Arminianism. What I really want to leave you with is a picture of light shining in the darkness. I want to leave you with a picture of Jesus in a place of such physical vulnerability, but utterly confident in his authority from the Father. In full submission to the will of the Father, for you, for me. Pilate twists and turns and goes in and out of the palace, desperately trying to hold on to this fragile power that he has. But Jesus lays down his power for love. So to close, I want to ask you, will you join Jesus in that prayer? Will you join him in praying, Father, not my will but yours? be done. Can you imagine what our church would be like, what our neighbourhood would be like if we all started our day with that prayer? If every encounter that we have in our day, every decision that we make was shaped by a submission to the will of God, an active commitment to knowing what his will is and seeing it done.